Hello, everyone. I'm Andy Mill, and thank you for listening to this first episode of Millhouse Podcast. Five years ago, my son, Nicky, came to me about his desires for us to host and produce this fishing and hunting podcast. Finally, we're here. We've been compelled by not only the monsters from the deep, but by the captains and guides who have figured out how to get into the heads of these leviathons. Their stories and techniques need to be told firsthand, along with some of the blood and guts of a learning curve. Nicky and I too have been struck by a bow hunting fever that has us well above timberline every fall. We'll be hanging with critters with bows who know the finer aspects of talking to elk, harvesting animals, and surviving in the deepest forest and highest mountains. So welcome to Millhouse, Nikki's and my quest for the untold story. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. (laughs) There's something fishy going on here. Steve Hoff has been a full-time fishing guide for nearly 52 years. He is the God of guides, the chosen one, the man who has set the standard for all others on the water. I was honored that Steve invited Nikki and I over to his man cave to talk everything fishing. We chat about fishing Key West in the 70s, early fly designs, and inheriting his work ethic from his mother. I really hope you enjoy this one. Steve, thank you for inviting us over here or welcoming us because we invited ourselves actually. And it's a long drive for you guys. We're in the, we're uh, in the shed of secrets. Thank you. And I don't, I'm not sure what this is about, but I'm here. Well, we're, we're going to go in a bunch of different directions if you don't mind. But uh, initially I've, I've got to say congratulations to you and your son, Dustin, uh, just having won the Holly. And I know that's a real big deal because you have some pretty big shoes to fill and he's filling them. In a big way, yeah. you know, and I'm pulling for him. You know, if somebody asked me, uh, so he's won two gold cups, and I won three in the course of my career. And uh, I think it was uh, Carlos Duncan said, you know, he's going to wind up winning more gold cups than you do. I said, I hope he wins ten times more than I did. Yeah. You know, he's a great fisherman. He's a great human being. And uh, I wish him well. I'm not in a contest with anybody. No, I get that. I'm in a contest with the fish. Yeah. What did that mean when you guys had, I mean, I think there are only two other or one other father and son's name on the Gold Cup trophy. 
the the Brewers, Craig and Craig his and father, his son Jim, his father Jim. Yeah, yeah. that must have really been heartfelt. Oh, when, it was heartfelt. Yeah, when Dustin's very, name no, is just, up there with yours. Oh, it's just great. Yeah, no. Actually, I believe that the Gold Cup today is a much more difficult to win tournament than it was in my day, because we use gaffs. We drug these things over the side and uh, brought them in. If we didn't fight them down and grab a leader and pull them over with a hand gaff, and that's that's a whole different deal. Angling-wise. Angling-wise for the angler. And we used to just uh, a release constituted grabbing the leader and popping the fish off. The guide would grab the leader and pop the fish off. Now they got to actually take the fly out. Take the fly out of a release. So for to win that thing today for an angler... As you know, it's pretty easy to grab a leader on one of these things and say, ah, we got him. But you know what? To get your hands on the fish and take the fly out of the fish, and that's a whole different gig. That's a caught fish. That's truly a caught fish. And all fishing guides, when a fish is right in front of the boat, they'll tell their anchor, I could have gaffed him, that's a caught fish. You got uh, the you leader. Know, you got the leader, that's a caught fish. You got fish. the leader, that's a caught fish. And and. For the angler, he goes, oh, he feels good about himself. So we all say that. All fishing guides say that. But the real truth is there's a whole big difference between when you've only got a shock leader that's 12 inches and somebody's got to get their hand on that thing and grab this fish by the gill and hang on and flop around. So it's a whole different deal. Yeah. So, you know, in my day, I did win that thing three times, but I think it's much more difficult to win today than it was then. So. How, how important was it for you um, in your prime to win these tournaments? Uh, I mean, you won the fall fly seven times with five different anglers. I mean, that's a hell of a statement for you <laughs> about you as a guide. Yeah, well, it just had uh, – I think I don't I, – in, in that bonefish tournament, I remember the first bonefish tournament. Uh, fly tournament that I fished. Uh, went up and fished a couple of practice days, and it was actually Billy Knowles. I was talking to Billy Knowles, and he said, "Holy crap! Have you ever seen so many bonefish out there?" And I'm thinking, "I'm not seeing. I'm not. Where are these guys fishing? You know, because I was getting like 20 shots a day, which I think is a good day of bonefishing in the Keys, even then. You know, and uh, eking out like two or three fish. You know." And uh, and these guys are saying, I've never seen so many bonefish. So then the tournament starts, and I go out there, and I get my 20 shots, and we catch a weight fish and a couple of releases, and uh, we're in second place. And another day goes by, and we get our 20 shots, and we catch a weight fish and three releases, and we're in first place. And I'm thinking, <laughs> maybe their idea of a lot of fish are my idea. I know a lot of fish are two different things. But anyhow... So I did uh, did well in those tournaments. I didn't go. My forte in that tournament was not to see a lot of fish, but to see fish that were catchable. Right. Because there are a lot of fish in the downtown area. They call it downtown Alamorado. Those fish are very difficult. They get fished for two or three times a day. They get hip. They're smart. And so I go wander off way out in the back country. Where I get like two or three shots. But I knew that if the fly got right. You know, we could catch the things, and that's what I did. Even back then, the the bonefish downtown were tough. Tough. Legendary. Which I think is so cool. Uh, The harder the fish are to catch, I really 
I think the more fun it is, you know, uh, because they are smart. It takes so much, right. it ups the skill level to know what's going on out there and when to move the fly, when to stop the fly, recognizing when the fish is taking the fly, all that stuff. So, but when you catch those big ones that are really challenging, I, that's the best, you know. You know, uh, in 1996, I don't, I don't want to make it this a, about a me story, but this was the greatest bone fishing day of my life. It was the opening day of the fall fly. I was with Harry Spear, one of your contemporaries, um, and we were on Shell Key. And you have lines in at seven. We'd been watching these fish tail. And right at seven, I make my cast and I hook this fish, a 10, 12 pound fish. We're pulling off the flat and Harry says, well, if this is a perfect world and a perfect day, we'd catch a 12 pounder before we get off this flat. And right then we saw these fish tailing over in the edge and we went over there, boom, I catch a 13 pound, 12 pound oh, fish. We're at the weigh station by 7.30 with these two monsters. Then we went out and caught six releases. And that is what you're talking about. Yeah. That is the bonefish capital of the world. These big monsters in shallow water that are really hard to catch. And and I was just like on cloud nine. I've never seen anything like that. No, no. It's uh, you get. I've had those kind of days, and it's just that was such a special fishery. You know, we would catch some days five bonefish. The smallest be nine pounds. You know, crazy. Wow. Like two elevens, twelve and a half. You know. 10 and a 9 or something. You just crazy stuff, you know. Where do where do bonefish rank in that in the order, the the fishing order if you will. And and, ob and obviously I think that we gravitate from one fish to another over time because you got the big 3, bonefish, tarpon, permit, and then you get the snook, so it's it's the big 4. In in the big world, where do bonefish I think stack bonefish up? are the best. I think they're Number one, I like I love bonefish because they're honest. If you make a really good cast and move it at the right time and recognize what's going on out there and watch the body language of the fish and actually hook up, you know, that's the biggest reward of all, I think, you know, because it's it just takes so much, I think, fishing savvy, big bonefish. That's not to say you can't catch an 11-pound bonefish in Andros that's never seen a fly before. So that's a diff whole different thing. But at right. the time in Isla Mirada, it was such a demanding fishery, skill level-wise. And if anybody wants a challenge, that was the best challenge. Now, permit, you know, they're not an honest fish. <laughs> In <laughs> what really, way? They suck. <laughs> I mean, you make a great cast. The fish races over to the fly. You drag the fly. You tweak it. You do all this crap, and they look at the fly and all that. So, I mean, that's... That, that just is pretty annoying, you know. <laughs> I didn't have a gray hair in my head before I started. <laughs> and what about tarpon? Oh, tarpon are just so spectacular, you know. I mean, they, again, it's the fishing on the Keys has gotten to be very challenging because the fish are difficult and they see a lot of boats every day and a lot of flies every day. But, uh, and that wasn't the case back in the day. But when you hook one of these things, it looks like, you know, a plane crash out there, just bombs going off all of them. They, what they do to their body in the air, unless you see it in slow motion, you've really never seen a tarpon jump. I've seen some slow motion videos of these tarpon jumping. The scales on their body are pulsating when they're in the air. It's just really spectacular. So for balls-ass excitement, that's 
that's probably the top of the line, you know. And and a tarpon eating a fly is a pretty special thing too. The bite is everything. When yeah. you see them come over, and there's so many different kinds of bites, the little sippy bites and head out of the water this far, gargling a fly, boom, you know. So, yeah, it's uh, everything about it. I think for me, the bite is the best of all, you know, well, the whole fight. Nikki really hasn't experienced a lot of the permit fishing. We've done some bone fishing elsewhere. And so as much as anything, it might be my fault because I've always gravitated to the big tarpon, even though I fish, you know, the permit and the bonefish tournaments. And, and Nikki, I think you too were enamored and and taken back by what these fish do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we did one trip to Venezuela bone fishing, which was awesome, those pancake flats. But other than that, it's been tarpon my whole life just because of you. <laughs> and it's, I don't It's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't regret it at all. Uh, I, you ought I to, love them. You ought to go. Uh, I don't know if there's those enough bonefish around Alamorada today. So those the big ones, big ones to really try to make a day out of it. But right. literally, we were seeing these giant things that look like footballs out there. They're so big around, you know. Uh, the but you've had a relationship with three different anglers. I think really a, a big time. Um, relationship with tournaments world record chasing and one of the freshwater magazines mentioned that you were one of the you and dell were one of the top 50 inspiration most inspirational fishermen because of your late relationship with the permit and dell catching over 500 i think you and dustin caught most of those fish you know with dell right um tell me about those early years of permit fishing west of key west with you and dell Actually, I learned about permit fishing on Dell Brown's money. Yeah, so he called me like in 1980. He wanted to target permit and fish for permit a lot. And I had done a lot of permit fishing, but a lot of it, I've had maybe uh, 15 or 20 fish ever caught with me on a fly. And uh, so it was a learning experience. And we were using lots of different kinds of flies, but and Dell was quite an innovator fly-wise and he uh there was he was using other people's ideas as well it wasn't Dell exclusively there were a lot of guys that were trying to catch these things more frequently but for whatever reason we started catching a lot of permit and more permit than anyone had ever dreamed of catching you know I mean there was like if you caught a permit in your life, it was like a big deal. And right. we were catching, uh, you know, we had uh, countless days. We caught five, six. Sandy caught seven with me one day, which was the best day of permit fishing I've ever had. But but also learning where the fish were, how to, the, when they were getting in a feeding mode, sometimes they're, taking crabs off the surface, very cool to catch them on a surface fly, like a dry fly, basically. And you can see them coming down, taking crabs off the surface. That's pretty cool. That's a caught fish. You get a fly in front of that thing. You know, the right kind of fly, something that floats and quiver it, not really strip it or drag it, just kind of shake it. Shake and, it. Yeah, shake it and look like it. Because these crabs are coming down. as Wiggling. Yeah, it's like on the right there, they're dead meat, you know. Yeah, I mean, these pretty cool to see a permit the coolest permit strike i ever saw i was with uh charlie causey and we were going down the edge of this channel and the, the tide had fallen out 
we had on one of these floating flies looking for one of these cruising permit taking crabs and we weren't seeing any and a permit tailed and there's a little alcove in the flat it was only about you know foot deep and this permit tail we had the wrong kind of flying because this fish is feeding on the bottom you know and uh he threw that floating fly over there and it drifted over the fish and the fish was had his head down he kind of lifted up and he saw the fly and he he was trying to get his head up to the surface but his tail was hitting the bottom <laughs> he couldn't get the fly and, and he he swam off into the channel and i said and and charlie said god damn i thought he was going to bite that thing and i said watch this and the fish went out in the channel got up ahead of steam and lunged up onto the flat and took the oh fly off the surface his whole, whole head completely out of the water yeah so oh my god it's like a 25 pound fish so it was like makes your hair stand on then to see something like that it's very cool uh, mentioning Charlie Cosby, I remember, uh, and, and I think you remember cause you've got, a, you know, such a great memory, but when I was fishing the Dale Brown tournament with Dustin, the first practice day on a Monday, we had two practice days and the tournament started Wednesday. So Monday we didn't see anything. It was 63 degrees. I remember blowing that. Like, I remember that. He, like he called, he calls me every night in a tournament. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it was so bad. So the next day at breakfast, I said, um, Dustin, you want to go mess around or you want to go have some fun? He said, what are you talking about? I said, look. There are no permit out there. The tournament starts on Wednesday. Let's go play golf. And and he thought about the guilt about not being out there looking, but we knew there was nothing to look for, really, essentially. Sure. So we're headed back to Sombrero to play golf. We had breakfast at Stouts, where you used to always hang out for right. breakfast. And we cross each other. You're going to Key West to fish with Kazi. And uh, we know what kind of a horrible day it was going to be. Right. And we all stop. We pull over. And you ask us, what are we all doing? And we said, we're going to go play golf. And we said, obviously, it's going to be horrible and ugly down there. And I remember you saying, God, I wish I knew how to play golf. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we knew what kind of a day that oh, was going to be. I've spent many a day stepping on my dick down there. <laughs> <laughs> was there a point in time with the permit fishing in, in Dell where you got over the hump? Was it a fly design? Was it just you understanding the dynamics so, of the permit? So I could go through an entire uh, talk about the evolution of permit flies, but but nobody was putting weight in a fly back then for permit, you know. And uh, Nat Raglan came up with a little fly that had glass eyes on it, which essentially was weight. That was the mo, huh? Right? That was a mo fly. No, it wasn't that. It had glass eyes on a piece of wire. I think there's some over there in that fly tying bench, but uh, but it provided weight. And oh, Nat had somebody. A guy by the name of Bill Levy catch a couple of permit on a fly on this thing. So we said, holy shit, we got to put eyes on our fly. So the epoxy fly, I'll tell you where the epoxy fly came from. I was looking for eyes because I was all of a sudden knew that eyes were the deal, right? So my wife had some shelf paper in uh, the drawers in our kitchen and it had little daisies on it, you know? But the center of the daisy was basically an eye right? right so i cut the centers out and it's got stick paper sticky paper i trying to stick them on they wouldn't stick on you know so uh i tried to get i made a chenille body you know and i took some epoxy glue and i was trying to stick these things on and it made a mess it was, so i said screw it i'm just gonna i'll just cover the whole head of the thing with epoxy quite that's where the epoxy fly came from oh interesting right yeah and actually 
Uh, Harry Spear came over a couple of days later, and I showed. I, mean, I think we caught a permit on it because it was more weight. It added more weight. The epoxy. Screw the eyes. The eyes didn't mean a damn thing. It was just the, the weight. weight. The it was all about weight. So then we started putting on. After that, the epoxy fly had its day, and then we started putting on little barbell eyes and getting the fly down. And I think the the real the real thing is weight, the right amount of weight, because sometimes they're real shallow and sometimes they're deeper, and sometimes they're down there four feet of water along the edge of a channel. You can see them mudding. You got to have something that really gets down there because they're not going to see anything up there, you know. But uh, that's how the evolution of the that's how the uh, epoxy fly ever got started. So. What about the merkin? I mean. What a name. Who who named that thing? I who named that said? thing. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you come up with that? I was I was fishing a guy at the time years ago who was kind of a rude character. And he, he told me what a merkin was. Maybe a lot of people don't know what a merkin is. Why don't but you explain what a merkin is? A mer- well, in the Middle <laughs> Ages, the prostitutes in Europe, had, a lot of them had lice. So they would shave their vaginal area and wore a toupee, and the toupee, a false hairpiece, was called a merkin. So, and also got rid of the lice, I suppose. <laughs> so anyhow, so this guy told me what it was, and uh, and I had tied a fly, I was using a fly like that, and it's a, kind of that same shape, you know. Right. <laughs> I'm a little, I've never <laughs> seen one, so I don't know. <laughs> at, at any rate, he said, uh, he started saying, I'm jerking my merkin when he was stripping the flies so. <laughs> So Dell was trying to figure out uh, a name for the fly, and I said, Merkin's a great idea. It's a false hairpiece, you know, and it right. fits right in. So, And uh, his wife actually found out the true meaning of a Merkin and told him that he had to change the name. She didn't want him associated with something like that. So that's where the word Merkin came from. But now it's known more, more for a fly than what it ever was originally. You know? And there's a term at- Called the, yeah, the it's called the merkin. Is yeah. the name of a fly down there? It's pretty, pretty. How the evolution? Is. Well, you live long enough, lots of crazy shit happens, you know. What um, your relationship with Dell was was really um, groundbreaking for sure. What about the relationships that you had, or not only with Sandy but with uh, with Tom Evans? You know, chasing those records. Well, Tom Evans started fishing with me, I think, in like 71. And uh, we caught a few tarpon. And I, I started guiding in 68, so I had a lot to learn as far as tarpon goes. So, But uh, I think he enjoyed fishing with me because I was running around trying to learn and also put in a magnum effort in a long day and we worked like hell to catch fish so uh we hit it off pretty well and you've met tom so tom is a pretty strong character in his own right so he would book me so back in i think like 73 or 4 he started booking me 45 days straight we fish from may 1st to june 15th every year so from dark to dark dark to dark yeah 45 days straight so we started learning a lot started catching a lot trying figuring out flies and yeah, i mean just like anybody else if sure. you don't know you just where to put the fly and how to fight him he's a big strong moose of a guy and uh he was uh actually a, a, a wrestler professional not professional but a wrestler High in wrestling. college yeah and you could see why he was just 
massively strong. So uh, we started catching a lot of tarpon. In fact, the first, I think we fished the Gold Cup two or three years before I started fishing Sandy. We started fishing the Gold Cup in like 77 or something. The first year, I think we caught one whitefish and a couple of releases. And then, but the last year we fished, like four years, we caught, uh, we came in second by five. We missed winning by five points. Yeah. So out of like eight ounces, 3,000 points, we were five points shy of winning. So who won that year? Uh, I'll think of his name. It was uh, Ben Hardesty right. fishing with uh, fishing with Hank Brown. They won. Yeah, but uh, but we we learned how to catch tarpon. What was it about Tom that made him so good? Because his his fighting skills are legendary. Yeah, just fighting fish, just unmerciful on a fish. If if you've ever caught a big tarpon, and you guys have, you know. I mean, you just don't let them up for air. You just I mean, that to make a pun but they do want to come up and roll and extends the fight sometimes but when a tarpon explodes and jumps you you just let him jump and yeah. as soon as he lands back in the water you whack him he's Pull. going backwards yeah. and if he jumps again let him go and then it hits the water when he hits the water he's in reverse so you just have to overwhelm them you know so you don't beat them physically you beat them mentally i think it just kind of nothing's working for him and just be super aggressive. I tell people, I said, you know, break them off if you want. Break some of these fish off. The biggest problem with people is when they hook a big tarpon that haven't caught one, or even not that many, or one that's especially large, is they start being careful. Because they're so they want to catch it so badly. They want to catch it so badly. I said, right. if you want to catch it that badly, you're not going to get them in because you're going to diddly dick around. Something and, bad's uh, going to happen. You need yeah. to know your limit. You have to know your limit. Yeah, you need to break some off. You have to so break can... some off. Yeah, you have to know how hard you can pull. You have to watch the body language of the fish, and you can, you can tell when a tarpon you're fighting him and you're moving him, moving. Then he coils up like a snake, and he's going somewhere in the next right. second. You got to be ready to boom, let him jump, and it hits the water. Not so <laughs> fast, Schwartz. <laughs> <laughs> so, so back then, was it? Did you really have to feed the fish? Or if they saw the fly, would they just come quite, over? Quite honestly, there were places even then that the fish were more difficult. This right. is like in the early seventies, but but uh, they wanted to eat chicken. They were any kind of chicken, any kind of, <laughs> kind of orange and yellow, black. Make uh, it move. You throw orange good. and yellow on the ocean side, which is a lot what these worm flies are today. But I mean, we threw mostly like on the ocean, grizzly, you know, and uh, kind of light colored stuff tan like like a lot of guys used to throw till recently and now everybody's throwing that piece of string out there right <laughs> but uh it's uh they they bit much better i mean they just they're pretty forgiving yeah they wanted to really bite. are yeah. what, what about when you first gravitated to home assassa you know what was the, what was the situation and how did you end up there with tom we were having breakfast and uh wasn't back then it wasn't stouts we were in a place might have been ted mary any it's not important we were in a little restaurant having breakfast and we were headed down to loggerhead to go tarpon fishing loggerheads an island on the ocean side of the lower keys and uh there was a guy in there who i knew who had actually was a civil engineer and had worked on seven mile bridge his name is norman duncan 
and uh, a very, very good fisherman, great fisherman. And uh, he showed us a picture of a tarpon that he'd caught up there. And it was a big damn tarpon, huge tarpon. And, and it was blowing and raining. And so uh, this is in 1976. And uh, we went down to Loggerhead and we're pulling around uh, Hommel's Corner, you know, sure. that inside basin. And we'd see a tarpon roll over there and blowing sideways and raining. And, and uh, we also, I think we've been in Coupon Bite, <laughs> talking about Coupon. <laughs> we were in Coupon Bite earlier. Anyhow, so we're, we're out there and he says, man, this really sucks. I said, absolutely. He says, what do you think about that homeless asset place? I said, man, I need a roadmap. I don't have any idea how to, <laughs> where it is or how to get there. And he said, I think we ought to try it. I said, well, we're not doing anything here. Just let's load this boat and go, you know. So we did. We went in, put the boat on the trailer. I told my wife I'd be back in about a week. And we drove up there and ran out in this Chasowitzka Bay, which is uh, kind of a nucleus for that tarpon fishing up there. We had heard that, and so we didn't see anything, nothing, zero. And then w went down south of there where there's some light-colored bottom, also saw zero. And uh, Tom says, you know, there's got to be here somewhere. So Tom had his own plane, but he he had flown his plane. I don't think he, he rode up there with me. He had left his plane in Marathon. But anyhow, we went in and... Uh, actually hired a pilot in a little Cessna and went up and drove around that afternoon and I looked down and we were like you know, a quarter of a mile from a million fish when we weren't seeing anything. We hadn't seen one roll but or anything but uh, and the next day we got on them and started smacking them. You know? And we couldn't, I couldn't believe, I mean for all the tarpon that we'd caught in the Keys and caught some good ones you know. The first couple we hooked it was like what the hell is that? Look like a flying manatee, you know? It's just unbelievable the proportionately larger fish up there. Uh, you know, we uh, galvanized on that. So we we fished about a week there, and uh, we spent the whole month of uh, in 1977, the whole month up there. Tom actually caught uh, his first world record up there uh, that month on Memorial Day. Of 1977, he landed his seventh fish for that day, and five of them were over 150 pounds, and the seventh one was uh, 177, which we took in. It was a world record, but there was not a boat on the horizon in any direction. It was flat calm, and as far as you could see were daisy chaining schools of tarpon. We ran for like half an hour to get out of there, and we were blowing tarpon for half an hour running, just solid friggin' tarpon. Unbelievable. Yeah, it was just It's like a Serengeti of tarpon. We saw one daisy chain. I don't know, you know the ba Ballantine beer label, which is like five circles together on yeah. a balance. There was like five circles. Like and the Olympic the tarpon, rings. Huh? Like Olympic rings. Yeah, exactly like Olympic rings. And they were... They were leaving one circle and going into another circle and going into another circle and circling around. It's just it's like a seething mass, like 400 tarpon in the school. <laughs> just like crazy. And we'd sit off the edge and we'd look for wide ones, you know, because they're, they're coming around the Specific edge. fish. Specific, trying to feed the fat faces. We said. And this is light bottom 
white sand, s- white sand, white sand, and they. But those ate. fish were like right on the surface. I mean, they were just their backs out, just waddling. You've seen it. Oh, <laughs> Holy yeah. cow! You're you know? talking about Nirvana. Oh, it was. It was like stupid. It was crazy, actually. You probably didn't sleep very well those forty days up there. I didn't. Or you're sleep probably much. so tired. You're, you passed out. Well, I was tying flies at night, making leaders. You know. Tom was complaining because his hands were cut from all kinds of backing cups. I said, nobody's crying for your ass, man. <laughs> uh, I'm supposed to feel sad? You're reeling all these things in? What was it like for you as a guy to to know every day you were going to go out? And I mentioned the same statement to to Evans recently. You were guys You guys were like Ahab and, and the whale. You were going out to kill a fish a specific fish what was that like for you and what was it like for you as a guy to have that gaff sharpened and knowing that you were going to stick something what was it like to actually get that fish on the hook if you've never gaffed a tarpon and not many people have today because you, you're not allowed to kill them unless you have you buy a special tag and all this stuff and that's a great thing because these they learn now that some of these fish get 50, 60 years old, 70 maybe sometimes. So we were just killing all these great animals, you know, for our own glory, obviously. Uh, But when you have a a fish that's, you know, seven feet long and weighs more than you do proportionally, and you drive a hunk of steel into their back, I don't know of anyone that's ever done it that their heart wasn't beating out of their chest. And you have such an adrenaline rush you know, I mean, it's just like every fiber in your body is tingling, you know, and you slam this hunk of steel into their back. If you're fortunate enough to stay in the boat, because I've been pulled overboard probably 10 times gaffing tarpon, just snatch it right out of your shoes. <laughs> and you're just being, you're just zooming along on the in the water with them, you know, trying to get your feet down, trying to reach up and grab them in the face and get a hold of them, you know. So it's... uh it's probably one of the most exciting things you've ever done. I, I've never, think. I've never had a rush like that ever doing anything. Yeah, I was having dinner one night with uh, with Stu App and Ralph Delph, who is probably the best fisherman that has ever been in South Florida. Wow, and That's a hell I'm, of a I'm statement. that guy. I always said uh, he could catch a marlin in a mud puddle. That guy would figure out how to catch fish. I mean, the guy was amazing. Uh, he'd do he'd catch fish so many different ways, figure out how to th- do things that were actually impossible to do. How about a 103-pound amberjack on a fly rod? This is years ago, you know. Hooked it over, teased it off a wreck, cut loose, drifted away from the wreck a half a mile before he allowed his angler to catch it, to cast to it. Teased it on a Calcutta rod with a blue runner. Took the fish, pulled the fish off the wreck, and when the fish was almost exhausted and losing interest in, and throwing, dink the fly in there. So, wow, he he exhausted the fish before the guy hooked right. it. Wow. So so ingenious, so clever, you know. Anyhow, I was having dinner with these guys, and uh, Ralph said, you know, because I think I had gotten snatched out of the boat the day before. <laughs> some, he says, there's not a fish in the world that could pull me out of the boat. I go, yeah, good for you, man. I said, I just, I weigh, I weigh 160 pounds, and I'm, I'm not glued to the floor, you know. So uh, the next day, we were fishing up off these St. Martin's Keys. I went up there. Stu, Stu and Ralph were way to the south, and there weren't anything swimming down there, and I was, like, thick in them, you know. So I 
talked to Stu on the radio and they ran up there and I see him casting and Stu hooks his fish. You should get Stu apt to tell you this story because he, he, he's told it a million times. He'll never forget it. I was watching him though. And they get this fish over to the boat and I see Ralph's got a gaff, so I know it's a good one, you know. And it looked like a pelican diving when he gaffed him. <laughs> <laughs> he went soaring through the air and got drilled into the water and uh, flopping around. The fish came off the gaff. He swam back to the boat. Stu still got the fish on, and they get up there again. And they run up alongside this fish, and it looked like another pelican diving. <laughs> so he got pulled over twice, twice by the, the same fish, fish, and the fish broke off in the gaff. Said to, Stu thinks it was 2.30. On 12 uh, contests, on, I think, too. Might have been 12, yeah. yeah. I don't know, but it was... Enormous. It was a freaking monster, but it was... Uh, so Tell me the story he about... Could, he could get pulled over. <laughs> <laughs> Living proof. Well, um, tell me about the, the time you got ripped out of the boat with Sandy in the Gold Cup at Seven Mile. Uh, we were fishing in the Gold Cup. There's... We were on this little bank that these tarpon kind of slow roll along the edge, and one roll right next to us, Sandy made a good cast, uh, hooks the fish. fish runs off, and we have, you know, you kind of make a judgment while these things are jumping. Is that a weight fish? Weight right. fish had to be at least 70 pounds. Right. So, and this was obviously a weight fish because it was, looked, well, it looked like 100 plus, you know. It jumps around. It jumped straight away, jumping like, half a dozen times, you know, you know, swimming in the air type jumps. And uh, while that's, that's happening, it's too deep to pull the boat. I cranked up the boat and we were kind of idling that way. And uh, I got the, I was getting the gaff out. I put the gaff in. I strap it to my arm with a sliding lanyard. It kind of slides to the end and stops. So it slides. So you're connected. I'm glued to this thing. And uh, the fish comes running straight back at the boat and jumps like three times and lands upside down right next to the boat. This is three minutes after hooking the fish, and I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> so I gaffed this fish. And you went. Oh, I know. I said, I said Sandy, come get me, because I knew I was could not stay in the boat. This fish was as green as green as, you know. And zoom, toes me to the bottom. And it's like, 15 feet deep and we're kind of zooming along on the bottom and I see I, I'm holding on to the gaff and out in front of me I can just see this fish's tail just and I'm thinking I got to get out of this thing I'm either going to drown or something because I, I can't it's stay in there good. forever and uh, then he angles up towards the surface and he's going up and I'm thinking oh this is cool I'm going to see a tarpon jump from underneath you know as, when something like that crazy is happening and I'm sure you've probably been involved with this Everything is so perfect. I mean, you can just see everything that's happening. You're just so focused. You it's know? like slow motion almost. It is slow. You, yeah. you ever see that? It's yeah. just like oh, yeah. everything slows down, you know? And uh, so I say, okay, this is cool. I'm going to see one jump from underneath and maybe got a gulp of air too while I'm up there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I see the fish break the surface, you know, crashing through the surface. Uh, Sandy said he only came out to his like pectoral fins, but. Sandy alertly came over and he shot over there with the boat and he grabbed me by the ankle. And so I'm, I'm stretched out with it. <laughs> He's got me by the ankle and I'm stretched out and the gaff is stretched out. And he pulls me back in and I pass the gaff handle on to him. And uh, we get to fish. It's 107, 107 pounds in three minutes. It, 
And you ended up with a gaff through your arm at one time, too. That was a different fish, yeah. yeah. That was when I was under the boat with one. He told me under the boat, and we're clunking around. <laughs> and finally, the gaff handle comes out. I said, get the gaff. And Sandy pulls it up, and a, the tarpon was on that went in here and came out over here. Just short of the barb. The barb then, then, I got a big barb on this thing. The barb is a folding barb that folds down into the shank of the gaff and into open. the steel and pops open when it passes it. Oh. So luckily, I, I just lifted my arm off, but it yeah. was... It was a half-inch hole all the way through my arm. Yeah. Let's go back to Homo Sasser briefly and, yep. and about what was going on up there, um, you know, catching these big things and trying to trying to catch world records. Tell me some of the uh, funny stories up there, like the story about two that big fish that that you that you caught, Raketa, and the and the apple story. <laughs> well, uh, we I was fishing with Tom one day. It was blowing pretty good. And who was Raketa? Let's go back so to Raketa. We call it, well, Raketa was a name. Most of those giant tarpon are females. Basically all of them, I think. And uh, and the smaller fish we called Rocky. We were calling them Rocky. And that's so what are we going to call these the giant one. ones? Of, Tom said Raketa. Because you can picture a Raketa with giant tits hanging down. Every time <laughs> we saw a boat where a twin engine boat had gone over a bank and, and – uh, Cut wheel ditches, twin wheel ditches. We always used to say, Rocketta's been here. <laughs> so, so, so Rocketta was like this legendary fish that we were trying to capture. And, and uh, so Tom had, I think he'd caught a fish, but Tom had to take a crap. So I said, he said, if anything comes by, just cast to it. And I said, all right, okay. So I... Uh, I stripped out some line. He, oh, he didn't have it stripped out. So I stripped out some line, and uh, I missed one school while I was stripping the line out. It, I wasn't ready yet. And then uh, here comes three fish, and I threw it out in front of them, and uh, I was short by about six feet. And, and but I didn't have. To, they were going to get away from me if I stripped it. Also, I, I said I just let him get even with it, and I bumped it one time, and this fish went like that, you know. And he came over there, and he took the fly. And I set the hook, and it jumps right next to Tom, who's hanging over the back of the boat. And he says, "Jesus Christ, that's Rocketta!" <laughs> so, so we were talking about fighting a fish aggressively, you know. So I, uh, I'm taking time out of his day, and uh, so I, I just pulled like hell on this fish, you know. I mean, I'm just ripping at it, ripping at it, because I want to get it in and get it over with. And I got up there, and it was Rocketta. And I, I knew I'd probably never myself personally ever catch a tarpon that big again. So I decided I'd like to keep it and have it mounted, you know. So uh, Tom gaffed it, probably the only tarpon he's ever gaffed. And he gaffed it for me, put it in the boat. And we took it in and weighed it. It weighed 186 pounds. And uh, it was 10 pounds over the world, the current world record or something like that at the time. Uh, the record at the time was 170. So it was like 16 pounds. 16 pounds heavier. Yeah. So. Uh, but I didn't enter it for a record because I didn't want to make what he was doing more difficult. Right. You know, and I'm just yeah. a megaly old fishing guy. I don't care about this stuff. <laughs> do you still have that mount? I do. It's right out there on that Is wall. It? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's been sitting in that other garage for years. But so when we came back in, Tom called his wife. And i never forget how we started the conversation. I just took the worst shit of my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's Tom for you. <laughs> yeah, that would be Tom. 
That's pretty good. Yeah. Wait, and, then, and then uh, after I quit fishing, Tom, I was fishing a, a variety of guys up there for like a week each. And I would take five days in tarpon season and fish with a really good friend and a great fishing guide buddy of mine who was also fishing up there. We'd take the same five days off and fish together as Dale Perez. <clears throat> Dale used to be a major league baseball player. We had a great arm on him. I played the outfield so we could stroke it in, you know. Right. And uh, we chased these uh, daisy chains and the fish. But if you ever watch one of these daisy chains, it was kind of weird. They'd be swimming, swimming. A school of fish would be just swimming, swimming, swimming. And then one fish, I don't know if it was a, you know, a male or a female, but one fish would just go smoking through the school and the whole school would explode and start da daisy chaining, you know. It was kind of like maybe a signal, hey, right. let's, let's have a party. do our do, yeah. what we do. So uh, we'd be chasing these things, and they wouldn't daisy chain. We're trying to catch them. And Dale, the, the box lunches up there had apples in them. So <laughs> Dale would, like, launch an apple. You know, I don't know how far he threw it. Threw it forever, the guy. And uh, it would land into the school of tarp, and they'd just boom, and they'd all explode and start daisy chaining. We'd go up there and hook one. So it worked pretty cool. And and you, didn't you or Dale hook one of their one of your guys' biggest fish ever together? I hooked it, yeah. You hooked it? Yeah. And you said it was closer to 300 than 200? I think it was. This thing looked like a friggin' manatee flying out of the water. It was spooky. And when I when that fish took the fly, I was stripping the fly. I remember it was a little purple grizzly fly. Stripping that fly, and that thing opened his mouth, and he had a mouth probably about like that. I mean, it looked like a garbage can. And Dale was standing up there. He was polling me. He goes, oh, my God. And I set the hook in this thing, and that thing came out of the It was just gargantuan, monstrous fish. The biggest tarpon I've ever seen. I saw a tarpon in Florida Bay one time, never hooked it, swim by the boat one time that looked like 300-pound tarpon. I mean, just massive thing, you know, back like this, you know, eight feet long. Wow. Crazy. That was on Schooner Bank. You know, you fish right. Schooner Bank. yeah. But uh, anyhow, I fought it for like, 10 minutes and it the mouth was so big he ate the shock and all the way up on the tip it frayed off you've you've had a number of, of world records uh the one you caught with dell that 42 pound permit on eight 41 and a half yeah yeah and you had a two pound permit record with him and a four pound and, record and you got the 127 and a half two pound tarpon. tarpon on eight that's still a record yeah, yeah. what what is the best record if you can assess that the, best, the best record, that 41 and a half pound permit that Dell caught, that was on eight pound tippet. The day before, he set the world record on eight pound tippet, like 23 pounds or something. But we thought that we could catch a bigger one. And so yeah. we saw this thing. This fish was growing down a bank away from us feeding. And I, uh, I said, Dell, I got to get around him to get a good shot. So I pulled way out around him and because I didn't want to hit him in the tail, so right. I pulled way out around him so he could get a fly out in front of him, and he threw it over there and hit him in the tail. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing just spun around, grabbed the fly, and took off. And uh, he fought that fish for an hour and three minutes. It got off in deep water right next to Key West Harbor, you know. Got off into deep water, pulling on this thing. I, ha I was going to gaff it, too. I was going to kill this sucker. I knew it was huge, and I figured it was. And uh, I was reaching out with a gaff at one point, and a tarpon free jumped and landed right on top of the fish. 
just a free jumper from nowhere. The thing ran like 100, 100 yards, you know, just screaming like, holy shit, we almost had this thing. And then, but that did him in, you know. So we got back up on the fish and I gaffed him. So that fish, that particular fish, somebody, somebody someday may catch a bigger permit on a fly, but it's not likely that it'll ever be on eight pound. No. And maybe never because I don't think, I've talked to, I have a lot of friends that are guides down there and they're not seeing that kind of fish down there anymore. anymore right. Proportionally that large, you know. I've seen bigger ones. Yeah, but I've never hooked a bigger one than that. I think right. that was the biggest one I had. So we gaffed it and brought it in. But his, Del Brown's best catch ever was a nine pound, 12 ounce fish on two pound test, which has been beaten here recently by and a friend then, of mine in Key West. But that was the best job of him fighting a fish that we've ever had because, first of all, Dell was probably in his 60s, you know, much more capable of what's going on and re reaction, reaction time. Yeah. Reaction time is everything. I mean, I'm 73, so there's no 73-year-olds in the NBA. I've never seen one yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, but... He hooked that fish and it ran through a bunch of mangrove shoots and he steered his line through the mangrove shoots. We were going down, the fish hooked him on a flat, but he ran down into a channel and there was an island in the middle, but channel through these islands and a little island in the middle. And I'm, we had rehearsed how this is going to go down because I was running the boat trying to get, because two pound test can't tow a fly line through the water, right? It'll break. Yeah. Too much the, drag. The, the, the line drag itself will break the tippet. Right. So he had actually took, an, took a seven-weight line and cut the running line off and put amnesia, which is a monofilament, oval-shaped mono, and so it's much smaller right. running line. But even at that, it couldn't pull through the water. So we're going down. Soon as he hooked up, I threw a uh, boat cushion on the bow so for him to kneel on. We had all this rehearsed. This is what we were going to do. Like we were actually going to pull this shit off. <laughs> <laughs> so he was kneeling on it so I because I was juking the boat all around to keep from throwing him out of the boat you know so this boat the fish is going with the current down this island and there's an island and he's going right at the island he hasn't picked the side yet and I said Del as soon as he picks the side I got to know which side it is you know because uh well I got it well, the current's pushing me I don't, I don't right, know right you can't it's hard to and he started down the left side. I said, he's going left. I started down the left side. And he said, he's coming back. And he thing came ripping around the boat. And I spun the boat in a circle and shot around. And, and, and there was a cut bank, mangroves hanging in the water. And the fish was like under the mangroves. And he stuck his rod down in the water, cleared everything, went out on a flat that was full of mangrove shoots. And uh, death. I was gunning the engine, throwing mud all over the place, went through all these mangrove shoots. He was steering his line through the mangrove shoots. If it had touched one, it would have just twank, you know. Right. And it went over into a lake, Turkey Basin. Went over into Turkey Basin and went up and down through Turkey Basin. And I netted that fish, but yeah, that was uh, that was probably as far as an angler skill level messing around with two pound test. Just Angel have hair. you ever tried two pound test? Tying a knot. It's crazy. Yeah, uh, we had a shock, like a ten-pound yeah. test shock leader. Okay, you had to have a shock leader because right. they rub their face on the bottom. So we had like a ten-pound test shock leader, but the bimini twist is only like that long. Right. You know, it's like an eighth of it. <laughs> stupid stuff. So anybody that does that's got to be sick in the head. 
Yeah. So that that that's probably Dell's best catch. That 127 pound tarpon. You know, we were looking for permit, and all these tarpon were swimming by us. We were out off Seven Mile Bridge on those banks way out there. You know, and uh, so we sat down to eat lunch and. And we'd hooked a bunch of them on, on eight pound and never, you know, three jumps gone, right. you know, fight them for five minutes gone. So this, uh, I looked down the bank and here's a tarpon. We're sitting there having a ham sandwich and I said, Dell, here comes one. He said, oh, you think I should throw it to it? Yeah, why not? You know, put your sandwich down, give it a shot. And he threw over there and the fish took the fly and uh, jumped like 15 times on the first th- going away, you know. And the line just screaming, and it's like wrecking my lunch. <laughs> and uh, things just, and it was still on. I said, holy crap, the stupid thing's still on. So so Dell was pulling on it, but I don't know how much he was pulling on it. So we we had gone, the thing went with the current, and we were way down by some islands there. And uh, I was noticing that the fish was right on the bottom, but it was only like four feet deep, and he was right on the bottom, and I could run the boat. Getting right around next to him. I was like, he's down there, you know. I said, Dell, I'm going to try this thing. This is like after a couple hours, I think. I don't remember the length of time. It was like two hours and something. And so uh, I put the gaff in the water right over his head, and I just let it fall because he was all the way on the bottom. And uh, when I thought it was somewhere around the fish, just guessing, you know, because you couldn't tell the refraction of the water and where the hell it was in relation to the ship. I, and just yank. yanked back, and it went right through the fish's peduncle, right th- through just in front of his tail, you know. Oh, and I also had told Dell, do me a favor. I'm not going to stay in the boat with this <laughs> thing. You're leaning way out. I said, you know, just first thing I want you to do is reach back and turn off the engine because if he tows me under the boat, I'll get chopped. The boat was in gear, and we're run- idling alongside of it. Right. You know, I don't want to get whacked by the prop. prop. So the fish went under the boat and went the opposite direction the boat was going and was towing me. I was actually skating across the surface on my chest, you know, just planing. He had me planing. And finally, he slowed down enough. I got my feet on the bottom, reached up and grand- grabbed my hand in his gills. And I looked back and Dell, the boat is still idling. <laughs> <laughs> Over the horizon. A hundred yards away. And he's like, oh, come on back. And he starts steering and he's reeling up his line. And he's coming back. He's reeling up his line, you know. It's like he doesn't want to damage his fly line. <laughs> right. We got the thing in and. It was 127 pounds. So. On eight. Yeah. Has this given you um, a new sense of of youth and fire fishing with Nathaniel now, Nathaniel Linville with the six-pound record stuff? Yeah, with tarpon? It's, it's, it's fun Does to do. Is that bringing a new level of, like, spunk back? If you, I never if lost any of that. Yeah. No, I love doing that sort of stuff, you know, and it's— But you haven't been doing it for some time, so it's gotten you back into the game, if you will, in some way? That kind of a game? We have we have fun doing it, you know. We have fun. We fought, we fought tarpon, I think, over like over 100 hours, you know, at a ridiculously big fish, you know. and Into the middle of the night. What's that oh, like? Oh, all night. Lost one the following morning. You like know? 14 hours later. 14 hours, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Occasionally, Nathaniel. Nathaniel Linville is like a phenomenal fisherman. I mean, a beautiful caster, like Nikki, just knows what's happening out right. there. Boom, you know, knows, recognizes everything, 
you know, what's happening, where to put the fly, when he's got it, you know, every, all that body language. But every once in a while he says, I think I'm moving him. And I said, <laughs> you are so full of shit. That goddamn, <laughs> that goddamn fish doesn't have a clue that you're on there, you know. Pull. The only thing that's going to catch this fish is we get close enough and stab him in the back with this big hook because that's the only thing that he's going to be interested in, you know. So, but. But the guys are great fishermen. We have a lot of fun doing it. And also, also too, you got your son Chad as your yeah, gaff Chad, man. Yeah, Chad's now. gaff man. Chad He's, got snatched out of the boat last year. The yeah. fish came off the gaff, pulled him underwater, disappeared for a while. I was thinking, aren't I'm you glad that's not you anymore? <laughs> yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. He was up on the shore. I got him. I got him. And he was gone. You know, <laughs> zoom. And, and like Chad's a, a big guy, going down. huh? Chad's a big guy. Yeah, he's two thirty. You know, and he's not fat. You know, he's just a massive character. My son Chad. He's. He's he's guiding now too. He's just a great fisherman himself, you know. So we have, you know what? It's it's, it's good fun. That's all life experiences, you know. And if I live long enough, we'll catch that record. If not, it's it's not important. It's just the the pursuit is everything, you know. It's right. almost be a letdown to actually happen, you know. Because right. we we've been trying for a while. We fought. A, it was just myself and Nathaniel. He hooked a tarpon about one seventy on six. And if we'd had a gaff guy in there, we would have gotten a gaff on him because I had set lights up, spotlight on the bow. But he swam by the right by the boat, but I was driving the boat. By the time I could, I had the gaff on my hand, but by the time I could run up there, he'd disappear into the darkness, you know? Right. But that would have been a catch. Yeah. Yeah. That would have lasted for a while. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind, let's go back 60 years, you know, for your childhood growing up. Uh, tell me about your first fishing rod, your first fish, and you know, those early years. Wow. Is that okay? <clears throat> sure. Yeah, I mean, so I grew up in Miami, and uh, my mother and father div were divorced when I was 10. And the last time I saw my father, the last time, he came by the house, uh, and he brought me a fishing rod. He had bought me a fishing rod. I had never fished. I fished with a cane pole for bass and brim and uh, freshwater lakes, but, but never really... Uh, anything type of a game fish or something. So he <clears throat> came by the house and he left uh, this spinning rod. And I didn't know how to tie a knot. I didn't know anything, you know. So, But I bought a, a little lure and there was a canal a couple of blocks from my house. I went over there and I threw out a, a little lure out there and I caught a snook about a foot long, which I killed immediately. And <laughs> <laughs> he, he froze it, right? I put it in the refrigerator. Yeah, it froze it solid. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. You thought it was a striped bass? Is that? I thought it was. A, I, yeah, I thought it was a striped bass. So I didn't. I, I didn't know. I looked in this fish book, and there were things with stripes on it. And I said, "This must be a striped bass." But and somebody, my sister's boyfriend, actually came by the house. And said, hey, you caught a snook? And I said, "Well, anyhow, that was like the coolest thing that had ever happened to me in my life." So then I became, you know going fishing every chance I get. I actually learned how to tie knots. I learned how to tie a clinch knot. Some I was I used to ride my bicycle down to Biscayne Bay and I'd catch creval jacks and I'd fill a basket with these little creval jacks and then on my way home I went by a Posmer, Pos, uh, Pontiac dealership and these guys would uh these guys that were waxing and cleaning the cars would give me a dime a piece for the jacks, you know. I was commercial fishing <laughs> around, <laughs> and then I'd ride over to a donut shop and spend all my money there. And I was in there getting donuts, and uh, I had my rods stuck in. I'd make rod racks on my bicycle. 
some guy goes, hey, kid, is that your rod? I said, yeah. He said, that is the worst looking fucking knot I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. I said, let me show you how to tie a proper knot. So he showed me how to tie a clinch knot. And then uh, my girlfriend's, I mean, my sister's boyfriend's brother taught me how to bi tie a bimini twist. Anyhow, it's just the way I learned. So. Right. But my dad, I never saw my dad after that day. So he just went off and did what he did. Yeah. Was your mom your hero? My mom she raised you. She did. She paid for my education. She did. She worked. My mom was a dress designer and a dressmaker. Worked her whole life until she was eighty-two. She worked making dresses, and uh, yeah, she put me through school. So I mean, she didn't know anything about the outdoors. I mean, she was not an outdoors person at all. Never anything about fishing. You know. Uh, when I told her I wanted to be a fishing guide, she says, they're all a bunch of drunks and bums. You'll never amount to anything, which was probably where I am right now. <laughs> but anyway, We all know better. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I just, and I just always, I was a student of all the guides in the Keys. I'd read the newspaper and I'd read about Joe Brooks and these guys catching these tarpon with fly rods. I got a fly rod. I didn't know what a fly was. But I, my mother got me a fly rod with uh, S&H green stamps, which used to be like you could collect enough right. stamps at the grocery store and you could get items. So, And it was a South Bend piece of garbage and a rod in a C-level line. It was like a level line. And I didn't know what a fly was, but I bought this thing. It was called a Bill Smith lure. It was weighed a third of an ounce. Had a big cork head and lead cast inside of it, but it had feathers. So I thought it had feathers. It, was a fly. it had to be a fly. And I proceeded to thrash myself to death with it. <laughs> so so I would cast it. I couldn't cast it. Trying to fly cast a, a jig. A jig. Yeah, I couldn't cast it out of my shadow. I just and I thought, I don't know the people that the people that do catching those fish must be like superhuman. They must be superhuman. <laughs> How do they do that? You know, it said Joe Brooks could cast uh, seventy feet into a twenty mile an hour wind. I thought, oh crap i can't cast it out of my shadow <laughs> how does this work anyhow I, eventually i learned how to do all that stuff when did you realize that fishing uh your life your career was going to be on the water was there a, oh, a i wanted a to be a fishing guy that flipped life. or you just knew no i just wanted to be a fishing guy from that first snook yeah so when i got a driver's license Every weekend, myself and some buddies, we'd drive to the Cayley. We'd sleep on the bridges at night. We'd catch millions of fish off those bridges and the Keys. Long Key Bridge especially, that's where we spent our time. One time we were, we'd camp on the bridge. They used to have catwalks on the bridge, wooden catwalks that were built for fishermen. You had to walk in the roadbed and then go out onto the catwalk. There's always big signs, fishing on the catwalk only, which... As kids, we were arrested three different times. For, we never fished on the <laughs> catwalk, of but we slept on the catwalk. We put tents up with nails and uh, slept out there on the bridge, caught permit and snook and tarp and all this stuff. Giant sharks at night. We'd put out shark rods and <laughs> crazy stuff, you know. And crawling down manhole covers in well, Miami. Well, that was in Hallover in Miami. It was Hallover Cut. Yeah, I used to climb down. There was a manhole cover. They finally welded it shut, which pissed me off. <laughs> But somebody get killed doing that stuff. What is it about fishing that that gets to you and in, inside your core? Is it the tug, the adventure? I think it's. I think it's. Yeah, I mean, it's fishing. If you take it seriously, it's a giant puzzle. You know, I mean, you're trying to 
trick something the size of a brain the size of a pea, but it's kind of a puzzle when you put it together about what makes him be in a certain place and how the current's running, all this different variables that go into choosing a spot to stop and go look, you know, and uh, and then actually pulling it off, you know. I mean, start to recognize what the fish are looking for and say, well, they're here. Maybe they, sh they should be over there too, you know. So you go over there, and sure enough, you know, so you start picking off, getting little clues about habit, you know, fish habits and all that stuff. But the biggest thing and the most rewarding thing of all, I think, is just the bite, just going to a place like that that you've figured out and you go, okay, they should be there and, and throwing up here and let the fly wash along and get it where you ought to be right there. Yeah. Right. Uh, so the, I mean, just the strike, the right. figuring it out. The, and, you know, there's just like hundreds of places, thousands of places like that. God knows how many places <laughs> I fished in South Florida, you know. So, and it's a challenge. I mean, if it was easy to do, that's why I think permit is such a pos uh, po popular saltwater game fish is because it's, it's a huge challenge, you know. People want a challenge. I'm going, <clears throat> in a couple of weeks, I'm going to Baja to fish for these rooster fish from the beach. They're not teased. They're just swimming up and down the beach. And you see, get like three or four shots a day would be a great day. And they don't bite for shit, you know. You but like when you catch one. It's so very cool, you know? Yeah. So I'd rather catch one fish in a week or none and have it be a challenge than to go out there and bail them. Who cares about right. that? You know, I just caught a bunch of fish, so I'd, I'd rather have something that's hard. Where did you learn your work ethics? From your mom? Because you're, you, you've been known to work harder than anyone. Probably from my mom. I don't know. My mom, when I was a kid, I'd get up and uh, in the middle of the night, and she'd be downstairs sewing you know because you had to get this garment ready for some lady to go to a extravaganza somewhere you know so she'd be up all night sometimes sewing she'd be crying she'd be so tired but she'd be doing it so i don't know plus i also ever thought so you hire a guide it's a significant expenditure it's a lot of money i feel like i want to earn it you know, so I might not catch a fish or even get an opportunity to fish, but I'm going to try my ass off to get something. But that also, too, tra uh, translates to your daily life. When you go on a bike ride, tell us about that kind of pain. Now, you don't just go on a bike ride. You you ride your bike twice across the country. Yeah, but that's, you just get on, a, get on the thing and start pedaling and you go somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you love pain, don't you? I don't think it's pain because I'm not in pain. I just love the experience. I love the adventure. It's an adventure. Life is an adventure. You know, how many people spend their whole life sitting on a couch looking at what, you know? So, uh, you know, but that's I'm, easier. I'm out there. I'm not going to have any regrets. I'm going to be dust someday, you know, but in the meantime, You're gonna make I'm going to be out there doing trying to catch crap. And yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait to get out there again, you know? I got to go fix a stove tomorrow or something. <laughs> as soon as that's done, I'm going fishing. What um, What is one of your better inventions that you're most proud of, you know, with boat designs? I mean, did you design the, the Dolphin Super Skiff? No. No, I didn't. But it's been your boat, your go-to boat for a long time. That particular boat is an incredibly uh, good riding boat in deep water it's a good open water boat it's 16 feet long but it just got a real good v that boat was designed uh 
by David Exley, who it's really the only boat he ever designed, and that boat was originally flat bottom, and uh, it beat you. Your fillings would come out in the thing. He, you couldn't hardly run it, you know. Right. So he put he just took some uh, changes mold and put a V on the bottom of it, and uh, in the process made it a very dry boat because the flat part of the bottom would throw the water out to the shape of the hull. So I kind of got onto that and. Uh, but I didn't design it. I designed the cap and the layout because right. they did, they weren't Dolphin Boat Company wasn't making uh, a fishing boat. They were making a runabout. So I designed the cap and so you inspired it to become that fly fishing skiff. Probably, yeah. But there was a guy in uh, Isla Morada who whose boat I borrowed uh, one day and went out in, and uh, he was fishing out of his name was Dicky Moeller. And Dickie Moeller had one that he was bone fishing out of. And he said, man, this is a really cool little boat for bone fishing. It was a runabout, though, you know. It had leather seats and all that crap and stand on the front deck. But So after I took that out and fished it for a day, I thought, man, this is a great little boat for this, but not in this configuration. So I did the cap, the first cap on one of those, first layout, make it a fishing boat. You, you've also <clears> inspired a, a colt down in the lower keys. A colt? A, a, somewhat of a colt with the super skiffs. The bandanas, the no trolling motor, they want to keep it real old You've school. inspired a whole generation. I just do what I do. And I've pretty been reasonably successful at it. And I've known a lot of those guys since they were kids, you know, a lot of these fishing guides. Right. And maybe my fishing ethics have kind of gone on to them as far as doing it the right way, picking up a push pole, and framing it down the boat. I was the first person to ever start covering my face. That was with a bandana, mm-hmm. which I still wear. But all these buffs and everything are a byproduct of that. I was the first person to uh, trailer a boat. When I started guiding down there, nobody trailered. You stayed at a marina. All the guides fished out of a given marina. Mm. I was sitting in Isla Morado, I mean, I'm sorry, in Marathon one day. It was blowing like hell out of the north. There was no way to get out of the marina even without getting killed. And I had this guy, and I said, well, let's just load this thing up and drive to Big Pine. And we'll <laughs> go fishing. And we did. And we had a great day. So I, I wasn't more than a year later. I gave up my spot at a marina. This is in 1969. And just started trailering every day. And now I don't know if they're... Uh, Bud Mary's is a fishing marina, and, right. but they still most of those guys the pull skiff. their boat out at night and put it back in again. You know, skiff guys always trailer. Skiff guys trailer. Part. I was the first person to to range away from one little spot. You know, what happened? When did you decide that you know the Clearwater Keys fishing was no longer where you wanted to be, and you made this big move up to Everglades City? I just thought what happened. Well. I've been trailering a boat for like 25 years up and down those roads. Never had an accident. I thought I was like testing the limits of my good luck, you know. Plus, I was living in Marathon, but I was fishing out of Ocean Reef some days. I was fishing out of Key West a ton. I was like an hour on the road. I come in, get back to the dock at 5 o'clock or 5.30 and then trailer, get home at 7.15 or 7.30. And, you know, so a lot of road time. Uh, which I thought always considered kind of dangerous. And then uh, 
I saw the increased pressure on the fishery and the number of guides. The first time I ever went out of Sugarloaf Lodge and ran out on the Gulf side, I never saw a single boat. This is like in 1968 or something. Never laid eyes on a boat all day. Not a guide's gift. There was some spongers out there that live on their boats and harvest sponges, but that was it. There was not a guide, not a person, you know. When I started fishing out of Key West, there was one guide, Bob Montgomery, who was guiding, and he was had did a lot of offshore stuff too, so I, nobody was skiff guiding, you know. And I didn't know squat, man. I was just like. So you're probably finding good stuff a, a fair amount of the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, you go anywhere, was, good edge fish everywhere there's more in some place (laughs) so you were the only one in key west skiff guide well i didn't live in key west i was trailering down there but there was nobody skiff guiding but bob montgomery he had a brother gene who did it part-time i think gene was in the navy and guided part-time but i was the only uh guy that was going down there fishing him every day bob montgomery had a thing a boat called the blue runner which is a beautiful little boat and he used to fish a lot of wrecks and stuff too but he did some flats fishing. He's a good fisherman. Who pushed you other than yourself? Another guide, per se, like maybe Harry. Harry Spear and you guys, you know, won a lot of the tournaments. Was it another guy that was like a rival of yours that we pushed each other and tried to? No, Harry didn't push me either. I mean, you don't. Just push yourself. When you're a guide, you just go out there and try as hard as you can. Right. Just every single day, you know. Uh, so you were your own barometer. You were setting your own. Yeah. I still do it. I don't. I, I mean, if it's four o'clock in the afternoon and I'm not doing anything where I am, and I feel like there's a spot 15 miles further away, I'm going. Absolutely, <laughs> I'm I'm going down there. You know. But after all these years and all these fish you caught, you still want to go to that one more spot, catch one more fish. That's actually a problem that I've had because. Some people want to go home. They actually want to go home. I used to have debates with Dell. He said, I'm ready to go in. Then I'm not taking you, and we got a couple more spots to try. I said, no, I'm really tired. In fact, that's what happened with Dell and I, is that he was so, uh, he had the same passion that I did, you know. But I did not let him get old. I didn't let Dell Brown get old because I wanted Dell Brown to stay, you know. In the game. In the game. And he was like 85, and I wouldn't take him home. <laughs> and so we were on a spot, and he said, I'm, yeah, I'm really tired. I'm ready to go in. I said, Del, the tide's going to be just perfect along this edge at exactly 430. I said, we'll catch a permit there. And the day before, I had to talk him into staying out. We'll catch a permit. He says, why do I ever doubt you? You always pull this out. I said, well, yeah, because we're out here. So anyhow. So I and I had so I got there early and I pulled over this flat for like half an hour straight into like a 15 20 mile an hour wind to get to this edge you know and I get to the edge and I get the boat all set up and the current's just about to get right you know what we wanted was a high faller you know and I uh, got a boat all set up and he goes he start he reeled in his line so what are you doing he says I want to go in Adele I just pulled a half an hour into this stupid wind, got us to this spot. You said you'd you said you'd stay out, you know. He goes, I want to go home. So he reeled in. I said, okay, goddammit. I was cussing like blue streak. <laughs> <laughs> Everything in the book. And then uh, we got in the car on the way home. And uh, 
I had decided I couldn't do it anymore with him. He didn't have that same passion for it anymore. I was crying, actually, because we had been, I spent more, for 22 years, I spent more daylight hours with Del Brown than I did with my wife. And we fish eight or 10 hours a day, 55 days a year. We'd be, we're like, you know, bonded, you know. I mean, I knew everything about him, stuff I shouldn't know. And he knew everything about me, you know. So we're, you get really close. The skiff is a small place, and it gets very intimate a lot of the times right. of conversation. So uh, I was crying. I said, Dell, I just can't fish you anymore. I said, you know, it's driving me crazy because I want to catch these fish. And and so I, I broke down crying, yeah, but I told him that was it. So he started fishing with Dustin after that. But it was only a couple of years before he passed away. So, but yeah. So I don't, it's, I, I still struggle with that. I'm fishing, uh, a couple of your anglers now I, probably have that aged. are older, you know, and it's, yeah, you know, what do you think about bullshit? <laughs> so I haven't learned a lot, but I, <laughs> but, uh, I just like being there, man. I like being floating and trying to figure stuff out. And so you made that transition when it got crowded and you didn't want to trans commute with the traffic. And right. So now I, I live in Everglade City. I launch at my friend Ted Jurisic's house. I got a three-minute drive out there, you know. Was this and, overwhelming when you first got here? I mean, you look at all these thousands and thousands of it's islands still overwhelming. And, and tannic water. and That's why I love it. Oyster bars. Because you can always learn something. That's my favorite thing about this country is there's not enough lifetimes to figure this place out. I mean, if you take into... I primarily am fishing. I catch redfish here and there, but I'm primarily fishing for snook and tarpon. And to try to, if anybody says they know the Everglades, they're full of crap. Nobody can know the Everglades in a lifetime, you know. I what mean, is? I, I run what, around there, and I'm running by millions of fish all the time. I know it. I just don't know where they're going to be, where you can catch them, or you know. Did Did you start guiding right away, or did you take some time off to know the water and here? Yes. No, yeah. I had been coming over here. I started bringing my sons over here when they oh, you were have. 10 and 12. Dustin and Chad started, uh, our summer vacation was here. We come over here for two weeks, fish daylight till dark. Oh, so you were familiar with it. Yeah, so I had a, yeah, and I'd done that for a number of years. And then I, I really enjoyed fishing over here. So I started bringing customers over here way back then too, you know. I tell them, I said, you know, I'm still trying to figure this out. The first time I came over here, I was fishing in the Keys. We were permit fishing off Key West, and I had a guy, he said, do you ever catch any snook on a fly? I said, I think I'd caught a couple around Flamingo, you know. But it was a time when the snook population had taken a dive. He said, you want to catch a snook on a fly, you got to go to the West Coast. I'll find out some names of some people over there. He said, no, I want to go with you. You know about fly fishing. I said, I don't know shit. I, I, I need a road map to find Everglades City, you know, and I did. And we drove over here and just went out. We caught a bunch of little tiny things. And uh, But I thought I like the country. I like the challenge of trying to figure it out. And That's always been valuable to you. so complex, you know, the, hyd the hydrology, how the water moves through the islands, which is really tells you where the fish are, you know, little back eddies, little edges, little, you know, how the water hits the shoreline. That has a lot to do with why fish get there, you know, stuff like that. So. And it's, you get it twice a day because when the tide changes, it goes the other direction. you got to figure out the fall or two, you know. So it's kind of fun. It's complicated. Yeah, I like to think it is, but. It is. Yeah. I you, dig it. You were, uh, it's been since November 1st, 1968. 
50, 51 years of guiding. Right. You said you're going to retire at 70. How's that retirement working out for you? I feel like, well, I've, most of the people that that I fish, I have fished for many, many years, you know. Bill Hassett, I have fished for 49 years. That's a long time to fish with somebody. Lenny Berg, probably 40 years, you know. Uh, but you're no longer guiding. You fish. Uh, I'm guiding. I take people out. They want to catch a fish. They're they're hire me to go catch a fish. Yeah. So you're still. But it's a just bit. yeah, a little bit. Just the people that you want to hang like, with. Like, yeah, I want to. I get to choose. You know, I fish some really super guys from North Carolina. This I've only fished them maybe a dozen years, but it doesn't sound <laughs> sounds like a long time. But it's, if you fish for fifty, it's not. But they're you know they're in it for the right reasons. They love the, love the fish. We tarpon fish. But uh, what is it about snook that gets your blood going? They're totally honest fish, and they're just balls ass exciting. You know, the bigger they are, the more exciting they are. But generally, you know, you get a, a fly in front of them, they just crush it. You know, they just they don't swim over and sip it; they just blow it up. You know, and they haul ass and they jump and they fight and they're beautiful creatures. They look like a Corvette. You know, they're just like a a missile, and. Uh, and they're very stealthy. They don't give themselves away. Smart. You know? I mean, bonefish will mud, bonefish will tail, permit do the same, tarpon come up and roll, and snook you can be in a place where there's like a million snook. And if they're not feeding or busting something, it's like, oh, shit, we just spooked another one. God damn it, we can't. <laughs> you know, it's like they're just creeping around. You're creeping around. If they were Puerto Ricans, they'd stab you to death in three seconds. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think you related them to pickpocketers. Yeah, they yeah. are. I mean, they're just yeah. But so it's really I like that. I like where they live. I like you know they cruise very slowly. They're explosive strikers like a cuda. You know they just lay in wait for something. You know, and you see them just sitting there. Sometimes it just looks like a little dark streak or a little gray streak on the bottom. You know, and could that be one? I was a chico one time over here. We were chico Fernandez. We were pulling along and on the conversation out riding. You know. Chico, we ought to cast. If it looks like a fish, if it's worth talking about, cast to it, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right, because these stupid things, they look like a stick laying on the bottom. So we're riding out, and we're pulling around, and, <laughs> and there's a big clunk of a moss that had kind of rolled up on the ground. It looked like a stick next to it or something. I said, he says, think that's a snook. I said, nah, don't worry about it. Oh, yeah, but we're both kind of glancing <laughs> over our shoulder. Go, Wait a minute, didn't we just have this conversation? You know, so I pulled back, like, 50 yards get he's still the stick as he throws it over it's like an 18 pounds no oh my god catches the, <laughs> catches the thing so yeah so i think they're just uh just a really great target species yeah. you know they're and they're fun. they're here prevalently yeah i mean you get certainly not every day but if you take a guy fly fishing just fly fishing well you know you'll catch a couple of little ones 30 of these you know there were 15, 18 inches long, and maybe a couple of fish that are 30 inches long, which 30-inch snook is, is a nice okay. fish. That's getting to be like 9 or 10 pounds, you know. Let's go back to Key West in the movie Tarpon, and which is one of the great, really great movies of all time, and, you know, documenting, you know, Tarpon. And, and let's just talk briefly about that group of characters. You had Jimmy Buffett, uh, you know, Bronigan. Um, Jimmy Harrison. Yeah. Jim Harrison. Jim Harrison. Uh, 
Uh, Tom McGuane. Tom McGuane. I mean, Guy Valdon. Yeah, these guys were all, they eventually became very, very, very successful as Oh, it's amazing. As <laughs> you crowded. did. Tell me about that era. Well, let, I tell you, I wasn't part of that group. I was like. You just got caught in the movie. I got caught in the movie, really, because Guy Valdon, who actually funded that whole movie, uh, was very close friends with Woody Sexton, who was a guide at the time. Woody Sexton was a partner of Stu Apps in the 50s, tarpon guiding down there. And I'd become really good friends with Woody. And uh, a character of just a ridiculously great guy, but a nutcase, you know, but a wonderful person. And so we, uh, he said, they're, you know, they're going to make this movie and they want to do a film. And there was, in that movie, there's also a guy by the name of uh, Ray Donisberger, who was a legendary angler at the time. He fished with Stu a lot. He was probably Stu's favorite angler. He was an unbelievable caster in his day, you know. He was a businessman from Chicago, but a great guy. Paige Brown uh, is in that movie. He owned a marina there on Big Pine. He was a successful businessman from up north. And uh, who else? But So those guys were like straight. The rest of these guys were nutcases. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were just out of it, chasing of it. women and whatever kind of chemicals was just fine with them, you know. They were whacked out guys, but they were great guys, you know, right. and they just worshipped the tarpon, you know, which is pretty evident in that movie, you know. Right. But uh, it's crazy it's, to see how they all they were all writers and they all, you know, not McQuain and, and Harrison, uh, Bronigan. Yeah, and they be they were really successful. Of course, I mean that one little group. Yes. out of that movie, you know, and then these other knuckleheads like myself, you know, they're just they asked me to be in this thing. Well, Woody got me in there. Woody said, "Would you be interested?" And in, we're just going to sit around and talk about tarpon. I said, "Hell yeah, I don't care," you know. So they had some dinner there. We were sure in Ray Donisberger's house, you know. And I'm uh, just bullshitting about tarpon. He says, "All you got to do is bullshit about tarpon." So I said, "Sure, I'm in." I mean, I can do that. Uh, Gil Drake was uh, the guide. There are two people polling in that book, I mean, in that movie. One was Gil Drake, who also lives over here now. And uh, he's a snook nut and an unbelievably good fisherman. He lived in Key West for years and years. <clears throat> and uh, the other person was Woody that was polling around with, with in that movie some, too. So, yeah. But I was just a kind of a bystander I bring in the bullshitter. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, after all these years, you were inducted into the uh, IGFA Fishing Hall of Fame. I mean, how great was that for you? Oh, it's kind of a neat thing, you know. I mean, some guys that I'd fished for many years thought it would be a fun thing to try to get me into that. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't understand it all, but I just, you know, they, people want to. I guess people feel like they have some debt of gratitude for all the good times we've had or something. I don't know. Well, obviously. I think I'm a good fisherman. But right now, today, when I started guiding, it was different. There were a lot of people that were in guiding because there's no other way to make a living in the Keys. A lot of them were retired from the working on the railroad, stuff like that, you know. But I, I had like this passion to fish. I, I guarantee you, Jimmy Albright didn't wind up in the Keys and say, I want to be a fishing guide. I'm going to go down there and guide. He was down there doing something else, and the tourists were coming down, wanted to get in a boat and go tug on something, and then he took him out, you know? Right. 
But, uh, and I think that's probably the case with most guides. But today, and I might have been the starting point of that, but today, I would say, I bet you over 50% of the guides down there have college educations. And they're just total fish heads. Mm-hmm. They just, all they want to do, they can't imagine themselves doing anything. They could make probably make a bazillion dollars on Wall Street, you know. But that's not important. And all the money in the world can't buy you the experiences that they, they're going to have an iPad. You can't, you couldn't pay for it. There's no money in the world. And, and to see the things like we're talking about Home Assassa, that'll never be seen again. Nobody's ever going to see that again. So, right. uh, What kind of advice would you give to somebody that wants to be a guide and has the same dreams that you once had when you were young? Go for it. Life's too short not to do what you want to do, you know. Don't expect to get rich. <laughs> <laughs> Don't expect to get rich, but, you know, I'd say I'd tell people to pursue it. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade with anyone. I'm the luckiest guy I know, really. I've done what I wanted to do. I've got a great family. I've got two sons that are fishing guides, and they're nuts. One of them was an electrical engineer for uh, since he got out of school, and— uh, like two or three years ago, said, Dad, I said, I'm sitting tired of sitting behind a computer. I got to be out there. And I said, hell yeah, do it. Go for it, you know. So he, he he's not looking back. He's just excited as shit to get in that boat every day. I mean, literally, after all these years, I get in that boat in the morning, <clears throat> pointed across the bay, and I own my day. No, there's no waiting in line anywhere there's no i just i go where i want to go when i want to go i'm i'm kind of the boss or the captain so i mean if i want to run 20 miles i'm going to say you know and there's a rainstorm i said put your suit on we're going right through that sucker (laughs) (laughs) but uh i just get out there and and uh it's just it's an incredible release when you get hit the throttle on your boat and you go you know I can deal with the broken toilet when I get home, you know, and all the crap that you leave behind and you disconnect and all your focus is just, let's go catch. What are we going to catch and how are we going to catch it? And, you know, what the wind and tide and cloud cover and all this crap is going into the computer and you start, and people say, where are we at? I go, I have no idea. I'm just going to drive around to something that looks like I should pull in, you know, and try it. So I you're think free. you use the term, you're free. It is. It's a total release. You're free. And that is it. And I've always said that. And my favorite time of the day is when I hit the throttle and I, the wind hits me in the face and I go, yes. Was that like your bike when you were 10 years old? Was your bike your sense of freedom? Oh, absolutely, man. I lived on my bicycle. As soon as I learned how to ride it, I crashed like a million times. <laughs> as soon as I, I had no skin on my knees or elbows. But as soon as I learned how to ride that thing, man, I was gone. After after all these years and all the great success and experiences that you've had, you've got a great family. If you had a chance to speak with your father one more time, what would you say? Uh, I never even thought about it, you know. Just say too bad, you know. Yeah. Too bad. I feel sorry for him. Yeah. I, I would have been a nice guy to know <laughs> for sure. as a son, I think. Yeah. I can tell you that because I have two sons and uh, – I worship both of them, and uh, if I talk about it very much, I'll cry. But I think they're the, they're they're great fishermen, but 
they're better people. And to me, that's really the most important thing. You know, it's not, they have very high ethics and high standards for themselves and they expect everybody else to be the same way. And, uh, you know, I tell them every day, you know, if you treat people like you'd like to get treated yourself, you can't go wrong. So, and they've lived with by that, you know. So they do. They treat people very well. But you don't want to be around and treat them badly. <laughs> You're going to find out about it. <laughs> Beautifully said. Yeah. Well, speaking on behalf of not only Nikki and I in the, in the fishing world, uh, we love you. Uh, well, I appreciate you've, that, man. You've I given just, us a lot. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for uh, thanks, Steve, for yeah, hanging man. with us. All right, thank you very much. Thank you, buddy. thanks, man. Yeah, thank you, Nikki. I could listen to Steve talk for many more hours, but it eventually had to come to an end. Steve was very generous with his time and hospitality. After the podcast, we had lunch with him and his wonderful wife, Patty. It was a great day in Everglades City. If you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Until next time.